biggest problem with freedom of speech really is, a ma is the economic problem. Problem of who has the money to, to speak out, to, to reach large numbers of people. And then there's an additional problem. Suppose you even overcame that and you had the resources. And now you could speak and you could reach a lot of people. And what if you then were in that position and you had nothing to say? Freedom of speech is meaningless if the sources of information are controlled. That's Howard Zinn, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Howard Zinn on Second Thoughts on the First Amendment, a special program celebrating the Zinn centenary. Howard Zinn, legendary historian, passed away in January 2010. He was born in Brooklyn. His parents, poor immigrants, were constantly moving to stay, as he once told me, one step ahead of the landlord. A World War II vet and professor at Spelman College and Boston University, Zinn was at the center of activism and resistance from the civil rights and anti-Vietnam War movements to Iraq and Afghanistan and the struggle for economic justice. He was the people's historian. Noam Chomsky said of him, he made an amazing contribution to American intellectual and moral culture. He changed the conscience of the country in a highly constructive way. I really can't think of anyone I can compare him to in this respect. He was a person of real courage and integrity, warmth and humor. Since its inception, Howard Zinn was an integral part of Alternative Radio. He was a friend and mentor to me and countless others. His masterwork, A People's History of the United States, has sold more than two million copies. This classic from the AR archives, was recorded in October 1989 at the University of Colorado at Boulder. One of the things that I, I, I got out of reading history, when I, when I began to read history, is, is, is to begin to be disabused of, of this, this notion that that's what democracy is about. Because as the, more, the more history I read, the more it, it seemed very clear to me that whatever progress has been made in this country on, on various issues, uh, whatever things have been done for people, whatever human rights have been gained, have not been gained through the, you know, the, the calm deliberations of Congress or the, the wisdom of presidents or, you know, or the, the ingenious decisions of the Supreme Court. Uh, whatever progress has been made in this country has come because of the actions of ordinary people, of citizens, of social movements, and not from the Constitution, right? And you know, you you think about you think of whatever progress has been made in this country uh, for economic justice. Obviously, not enough progress has been made for towards economic justice. Looking around at, at this country, you have to, of course, you look around. You have to uh, walk through a whole city. If you walk through half a city, you'll be mistaken. You have to walk through a whole city, and you see the class structure in the United States, the the, the hidden story of of you know, American prosperity and so on. So obviously we haven't made a lot of progress. Well, we've made some progress, you know. We did, we got it down to an eight-hour day. <laughs> Anybody who works an eight-hour day knows, right? We college professors, uh, those people I used to associate with, but eight-hour, no, an eight-hour day is a long day. The people work 12 hours and 14 hours and 16 hours, and they work six days a week and seven days a week, 
And, and then at a certain point, we, we did get it down to an eight-hour day uh, for at least a lot of people. Now, how was that done? It wasn't done through the Supreme Court. It wasn't done through Congress. And it wasn't done through the President. There's nothing in the Constitution, an interesting thing about this much-touted Constitution. The Constitution doesn't say anything about economic rights, at least not for people. It has something about freedom of contract, which is not an economic right for people, but an economic right for corporations. But, uh, the, uh, but uh, no, the, the, the Constitution has nothing about the right of, of people to, to breathe fresh air or to live in a decent place or to have medical care or to make enough money or to work uh, not too many hours. There's nothing about that in the Constitution. Whatever was gained in that way for working people was gained through a, an enormously rich, complex history of labor struggles in this country. A history which has been mostly ignored in the history books that have been written. You know, when, I, when I was going all through the history training process, you know, being trained as a historian, you know, they snap a whip and you hold up a book and uh, you jump at it. And, and uh, you, uh, you learn. I, when I went all through, very little about labor history. Really. When I began to read on my own about labor history, I was interested because I'd spent three years working in a shipyard, and I thought, hey, uh, I, that's what interests me. And then I began to read, and I saw what hadn't been told about labor history. I saw what magnificent events had taken place, what struggles people had gone through, what sacrifices, what risks, what courage had been shown, what had been demonstrated about the possibilities of what human beings can do once they get together, what people had gone through and what drama there was. I wondered, where's Hollywood? <laughs> drama, talk about drama. You know, Hollywood is struggling to get a bit of drama into some stupid movies. And here with some of the great dramatic events of American history, it wasn't there in our culture. It wasn't there in our books. It wasn't there in our literature. It wasn't there on the screen. Uh, but that, that's how whatever modicum of economic justice we have was gained. What about the rights of women? Where is that in the Constitution? Right? The people have been struggling to get something into the Constitution about that. But there isn't, right? Whatever has been gained for women, and there, you know, something has been gained for women in, in this country over the years, especially in, you know, in this century, and maybe especially in the last 10 or 15 years, something has been gained. But whatever has been gained has been gained through the struggles of women themselves. Now, Emma Goldman made this very clear when they, were struck, when they were campaigning at the beginning of the 20th century for the uh, women's suffrage. And she said, look, I have nothing against women's suffrage. And she didn't want to alienate too many people. You know, <laughs> she, you know, she's already had alienated almost everybody. And the, her seven friends left. She didn't want to alienate them. So, you know, it's okay, it's good for women to vote. Women, yes, women, does. if men vote, sure, why shouldn't women vote? But look, don't kid yourself. The vote isn't going to get you much. Look what it's gotten men. <laughs> and she said, whatever women get, they're going to have to get through direct action against the circumstances of their oppression, against the situations that oppress them in the home, in the workplace, in the, in the community. They're going to have to act directly Forget about constitutional amendments and, and law and this and that. They may follow, but they will follow. They will not lead. This is the, uh, the point I'm making about the, the, how things have happened, how things have, how things have changed. Uh, 
what, what progress has been made uh, is perhaps no more vividly illustrated than in the case of black people in this country. Of course, there, yes, there is something in the Constitution. There was something in the Constitution. What there was in the Constitution was bad, right? That, what there was in the Constitution affirmed slavery. That's why uh, Garrison and the New England Slavery Society went out there to this, their annual picnic in Garrison, held up a copy of the Constitution, and held a match to it and burned the Constitution. Are they getting excited about the flag? <laughs> 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 How would they like that? You know, the Constitution. You remember guys just burned draft cards and, and, and politicians went apoplectic? What about burning the entire Constitution, you see? But he burned it because he said it's a, you know, this is a covenant with hell. Uh, and then finally, when they did amend the Constitution, Right? And they didn't amend it just because Congress one day thought, hey, it would be good to have equal right, right? The, the, amendment, the, the amendment, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments came after an enormous struggle. Uh, I'm not just talking about the Civil War. I'm talking about the struggle that preceded and took place during the Civil War, the struggle of the anti-slavery movement. Uh, it was that, that movement that created the atmosphere in which slavery could be done away with. It was that movement that created the pressure that pushed Abraham Lincoln to, to write that rather piddling document called the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, it was piddling. It had great moral force, but it really, if you read the language of the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, it was so meager, you know. You know, he said, I now declare the slaves free in all the areas where we can't enforce it, right? <laughs> And in all the parts of the country where we can enforce it, that is the parts that are fighting with us, you don't have to worry about your slaves. They're still around. Yeah. But whatever happened there, with the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the pressure of the anti-slavery movement, the atmosphere created by that enormous movement, which started out very small, that's what it did. And then when the 14th Amendment was 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments were passed, and finally, finally, we had in the Constitution the obliteration of those terrible words that made it a pro-slavery document. And finally, we had in the Constitution those words about the equal protection of the laws and, and life, liberty, and, you know, and so on. Property, yes. And uh, you can't believe that out. Well, uh, but when we had those noble words about equal protection of the laws, finally, and, and you can't deny people the right to vote on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And there it was, powerful. Finally, the states can't do this to anybody. And then, of course, everybody, I suppose, knows uh, it was ignored. So you have it in the Constitution, right? Didn't mean a thing. For 100 years, it was ignored. And the 14th Amendment didn't take on any meaning, and the 15th Amendment didn't take on any meaning until black people rose up in the 50s and 60s in the South and mass movements in the hardest, toughest, most dangerous places in the country for anybody to rise up anywhere. And they, they, they created the kind of uh, excitement uh, and embarrassment to the national government that finally brought some, began to bring some changes. And, made whatever words there were in the Constitution and the 14th Amendment have some meaning for the first time. That's what did it. And then, of course, on the matter of foreign policy uh, and the Constitution, the Constitution has a few things to say about foreign policy, but it hardly means anything. As any, we, we, it's become clearer and clearer, right? 
Well, what, uh, who pays attention to the Constitution? Does the President pay attention to the Constitution? The Constitution says you know, it's the Congress that declares war. Does the President pay any attention to that? The President makes war when he wants to make war. Did that in Korea? Did it in Vietnam? You know, who cares about what the Constitution says about who shall declare war? So, if you're going to do anything in foreign policy, like if you're going to help stop a war, you're certainly not going to do it through the channels. You're not going to do it through the Supreme Court or the Congress. Well, you, the, there's the Vietnam War. Uh, they actually gave a Nobel Prize to Henry Kissinger for helping us stop the Vietnam War. <laughs> One of the, I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's enough to make you so, want to build 97 statues to Jean-Paul Sartre, who refused the Nobel Prize because he said it was a political, really, you know, kind of prize. Imagine giving it to one of the architects of the war, give him the prize for helping to stop the war because he signed that treaty at the end, only, well. But the war was not stopped by any of the formal institutions of government. In fact, the Supreme Court, which should have been we learned that in elementary or wherever we learn it, junior high, high, I don't know where we learn it. We learn it somewhere that the Supreme Court is the guardian of the Constitution. And when anybody does something that violates the Constitution, the Supreme Court is there to say, no, you can't do this. You see? And so these guys, these GIs during the Vietnam War came up before the Supreme Court and said, uh, we refuse to go to Vietnam because it's an unconstitutional law. You, the Supreme Court? Okay. Supreme Court ref didn't rule against them. The Supreme Court just refused to hear the case. Wouldn't hear it. Wouldn't discuss it. Right? The Supreme Court is great on little things. But you get to matters of life and death. <laughs> it's nowhere. So a movement had to be created in this country to stop the war, to help stop, stop the war. That's what happened. And it bypassed the formal institutions of government, bypassed that sheepish timorous, obsequious Congress that kept voting money for this war again and again, bypassed all the institutions and created an enormous commotion and tumult in the country and, uh, uh, and scared the President and Congress, really. You'd have to read the Pentagon Papers. You'd have to read, read the, the, all those things in the Pentagon Papers and how what attention they were paying to public opinion and to demonstrations and to draft refusals and all of that to see how it affected the, their decisions about the war and the decision to start uh, re retrenching and not escalating the war anymore. That's what democracy is. Uh, and uh, it's what people do uh, on behalf of, of, of human needs, uh, outside of, sometimes against, uh, yes, against the law even, and against the Constitution as the, as the people, when the Constitution was pro-slavery, right, people had to go not just against laws, but against the Constitution, it's, right, in the 1850s when they were doing all that civil disobedience against uh, the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, and so pe people had to create disorder and uh, which goes against, again, what we learn in, about law and order and an orderly society, and you must obey the law, and right? O obey the law, obey the law. It's uh, a wonderful way of containing things. And uh, I was reading something, again, I've made a mistake of uh, reading. Somebody interviewed Gertrude Schultz Klink. Anybody here ever heard of? 
Gertrude Schultz Kling. She was chief of the Women's Bureau under Hitler. Did you know there was a Women's Bureau under Hitler? He was a great person for women's freedom. <laughs> chief of the Women's Bureau. She made sure that women were doing what had to be done for the state, right? So that was her job. She was, and she's around, you know, uh, having fun. And, uh, somebody interviewed her at, and uh, about the, the Jewish policy of the Nazis and asked her, how come, you know, they're able to go along with that? And she said, we always obeyed the law. Isn't that what you do in America? Well, that's a nasty thing to say. <laughs> you know, you mean, yeah, we're just doing what you do. You know, we obey the law, you obey the law. Even if you don't agree with the law, personally, you will still obey it. Otherwise, life would be chaos. We don't want chaos. We want order. <laughs> On the other side, you have Garrison, the abolitionist, saying, when somebody said, hey, let's not create too much commotion. Let's do things more quietly. Yes, I'm against slavery, too, but you're really speaking too loud. No. And uh, Garrison said, replied to him and said, slavery, sir, will not be overthrown without excitement, a tremendous excitement. Uh, that has a lot to do with democracy. But I want to create a context. We always claim that when we go on and on about something. We're creating a context. Uh, create a context for talking about the First Amendment because what I have to say about the First Amendment fits into this general theme about what democracy really is and whether your democracy comes to you through the existence of these formal institutions or whether it requires all sorts of action and organization and risk and sacrifice uh, and energy uh, which goes on outside of the formal apparatus and which is engaged in by, by people, just ordinary people. So, second thoughts on the First Amendment. The first thoughts on the First Amendment are the, are the ones, well, I suppose we all have when we first read the First Amendment and hear about it and, and uh, write essays for the uh, Reader's Digest essay contest on <laughs> Bill of Rights Day, you know, and how you know, wonderful it is. Uh, we, how, it's just wonderful to have a First Amendment. Congress shall make no law, you know respecting an establishment of religion or bridging the free exercise thereof, you know, right? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, bridging the freedom of speech or the press, the right of persons peaceably to assemble, to petition the government for redress of grievances. It's, it's a terrific amendment. And it, it makes you feel good to have an, something like that in the Constitution as the basic law of the land, the highest law of the land. And, and its language is absolute. There are no exceptions in it, and no buts, and you know, they hear a lot of buts, and uh, you know, howevers, and you know. You, no, it's, it's there, it's flat, it's absolute. Speech, press, petition, assembly, it's fantastic. But, <laughs> this is a good but, they're bad buts. Uh, and you have to, I will only use good buts. Uh, Freedom of expression uh, does not depend on the First Amendment. Let me give you an example. It took me a while to, f to figure this out. It took me longer than it should have, and I don't know exactly when I did, uh, but I know one of the moments when I, I began to think about it very forcibly when I was in the South. I was teaching at Spelman College, which is a, a black co college for women in Atlanta, Georgia, 
I was teaching that for seven years uh, from 1956 to 1963, and uh, it was an amazing time to be there, and I could see my, you know, my, my students uh, move from uh, a situation of what seemed absolute courtesy, politeness, quiet, order, <laughs> and suddenly burst out uh, in uh, this, the way things happen when people have despaired that anything will ever happen in a situation, and suddenly things happen. And then you realize that you don't know anything about the way human beings are. You, know, you think you know how, what human beings are thinking by watching their external behavior. You don't know what's going on inside people. You don't know what they're thinking about. You don't know what they're feeling. You don't know what they're holding back. You don't know that they're waiting for the right moment. You don't know how indignant they are. You don't know how wise they are. You look at people not doing anything and you put them down. The people are not dopes. <laughs> I'm sorry for using such an academic word. Uh, <laughs> if I had ever used that in my doctoral dissertation. Uh, people have common sense. People, it, there's a reality. If the reality is there, people feel it. Uh, they may not say anything about it. They may not be practical to say anything about it. But when the practical moment comes, things will happen. So my students began to do these things. And one day, a group of students, uh, we lived on campus, uh, on Spelman College campus, beautiful campus. And, uh, and one day, a group of students came to my house and, and uh, said, um, can we borrow your car? Now, I was a, a great force in the Civil Rights Movement. I had a car. <laughs> uh, I said, where are you going? Uh, going downtown. In fact, we have a question to ask of you. Uh, you teach constitutional law. I drew myself up to my full height uh, of, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes. And, uh, uh, and we're going to distribute leaflets on Peachtree Street, downtown Atlanta. Uh, uh, we're going to distribute leaflets against racial segregation in Atlanta. You have to understand, Atlanta was as tightly segregated at that time as Johannesburg, South Africa, you know, really. You know, now you see a black mayor, black policeman. No, no such thing. Atlanta was like Johannesburg. We're going to go downtown to the white downtown of Atlanta, and we're going to distribute leaflets, we black students, against racial segregation. Do we have a constitutional right to do that? The answer is easy for anybody who studied constitutional law. Well, it's... There's a lot of ambiguities in, you know, Supreme Court decisions, right? You know that. A lot of things that are uncertain. But there's probably no, nothing in the Bill of Rights on which the, the decisions of the Supreme Court have been more firm than the right to distribute leaflets on a public street. It's, that is clear. So the answer is an easy one. <laughs> yes. You have an absolute right to distribute leaflets on Peachtree Street. Don't worry. <laughs> well, that's what I might have said if I were a real idiot. <laughs> I was half an idiot, but not a real idiot, you see. So I had to say to them, well, you know, yes, you do have a constitutional right, but if a policeman comes up to you and says, what policemen say in such situations. I don't, you can imagine what policemen say. Uh, 
something like leave, you know. <laughs> you know. Well, policemen have their, they have their principles. Uh, they don't like the sight of people distributing leaflets on certain subjects on public streets. And the police will say, I don't leave. So what do you do then? Well, obviously the policeman, you know, is not quite aware of the Supreme Court decisions. So you say to the policeman, sir, uh, I think I should inform you that I have an absolute constitutional right to do this, uh, Marsh versus Alabama, 1946. Uh, and at that point, the, the situation is very clear. You have on your side the Constitution of the United States and the words of the Supreme Court. And a policeman, all he has is his club <laughs> and his gun. Oh, you can take that and, and th that is a, stands for so much. That tells so much uh, about the difference between words on paper and the realities of power uh, in the world. Now what happened, of course, in, in the civil rights movement is that uh, understanding that in some way, understanding that uh, uh, because it was so clear and because black people in the South had so much experience with it, uh, they didn't wait for the Supreme Court to come to a new decision on the right of black people to sit at lunch counters. In fact, the law was against that. If you know, those of you who studied a little constitutional law, you know that the law, you know, by uh, uh, 1960, early 1960s, was, had been set down in 1883 in the civil rights cases, and, and, and private entrepreneurs, private restaurants and hotels were not covered by the 14th Amendment. And they could discriminate, and you had no constitutional right to ask for service at a lunch counter or a hotel or any public place. So when, what did they do? What did those sit-ins? That was the situation when those kids sat in in Greensboro, North Carolina in February 1960. That was their situation. That was the situation for all the, the subsequent sit-ins all over the Deep South in 1960 when the sit-ins spread all over the South. They were going against the Constitution. But they won. They succeeded. One after one, the, the, the against demonstrations and, the, and, and uh, and persistence and mass arrests and the television pictures going around the world and embarrassment and so on and boycotts and trouble, uh, uh, places gave in. Uh, constitution or no constitution, whatever, right? Because what the movement did was to create a power as a countervailing power to the policeman with a club and a gun. And that's essentially what movements do. They create countervailing powers. They create a reality. Uh, to counter the, that reality of power, uh, which is much more important than what is written down in the Constitution or the laws. You're listening to Howard Zinn, Second Thoughts on the First Amendment. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program and the classic Zinn books, A People's History of the United States, and You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, 
alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Let me say a little about the First Amendment. It says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. 1791, First Amendment is passed. Make no law abridging freedom of speech. Seven years later, Congress passes a law abridging the freedom of speech. The Sedition Act of 1798 is, says that if you criticize the government, you can be put in jail. Well, no problem, right? The law is passed against the Constitution, the Supreme Court will take care of it, right? It gets, goes into the courts. They try to put people in jail for violating the Sedition Act because these people have been criticizing the administration. They cite the First Amendment, and the Supreme Court justices say, sorry, the First Amendment doesn't apply. Why not? It says Congress shall make no law. Abridging the freedom of speech. They're abridging our freedom of speech. You don't understand. People, people really are very thick. You know. They think they can just read words and know what they mean, you see. <laughs> uh, why, why do people go to law school? To see what words really mean, you see. I mean, how do you become a judge? You don't understand. You have to go behind that. You have to go behind those words, far behind those words, you see. And, and you have to look. sound like Talmudic, uh, you know, something you'd ask at Passover. What does freedom of speech mean, you see? And, you have to go back to British common law. Let's see, what, let's see what freedom of speech means in English common law. Really, that's what that's was the argument of the judges. English common law? We just had a revolution against England. <laughs> right? We, it's, it tells you a lot about, you know, about revolutions, you know. We had a revolution against England, and here we are still with English common law. Well, freedom of speech means no prior restraint. I know that takes a little, you know, I, I can hear you thinking about it. No prior restraint. I'm thinking about it myself. No prior restraint. In other words, it means we can't stop you in advance from saying what you want to say. But once you say it, we can put you in prison. <laughs> And I'm serious. Blackstone is serious. The Supreme Court is serious. They're all serious. Down to the present day, that is still what the First Amendment means. I'm serious. <laughs> That's doubly serious. People are always astonished to hear this. You might say, uh, if you were just an ordinary you know, person, I'd say, but uh, let's see. You're not going to stop me, but if I say it, I'll go to jail. If I know that, doesn't that stop me? <laughs> Isn't that prior restraint? Oh, you don't understand. You know. Uh, there's a big difference between common law and common sense. You <laughs> so there we are with no prior restraint. 
And that's why Congress can pass laws abridging the freedom of speech. And it does, did. Did then, it's Sedition Act of uh, 1798. It did again in the World War I. They passed another. They passed the Espionage Act in World War I. The Espionage Act, another lesson. Don't think you can tell a law from its title. Espionage Act said, oh, good, we don't want espionage. Right? <laughs> Who wants espionage? You know. So, but it turns out the Espionage Act, it does have some things on espionage. I, I, but it also has other things like you can't say this, you can't write this, you can't print this, you can't publish this, you can't utter this. They love the word utter. You know. I guess if you say it but don't utter it, it's okay. You know. uh, the act said you, you cannot say things or publish things that will discourage recruitment in the armed forces of the United States. But they passed this right in 1917. The United States had just gone to war, uh, joined the, that noble crusade, World War I, right? The 10 million men died in the battlefields, and at the end of it, nobody knew why the war was fought. But not, not an atypical uh, situation for wars. At the end of it, people look around at the debris, right? And at the, the you know, hey, what, what happened here? The World War I, the Espionage Act is passed. You can't say things that would discourage recruitment or enlistment in the armed force of the United States. In other words, you can't speak against the war. That's what it meant. You cannot criticize the war. And so then it was tested. The act was tested. Uh, this guy, a socialist named Schenck, the Socialist Party was quite strong in those early years of the 20th century. Yeah, really strong. You had 57 socialist locals in Oklahoma. I'm serious. You know. It was a big movement. The Socialist Party was a big, powerful movement. And Schenck was a socialist, and he distributed leaflets against the draft and against they passed the draft law, against the draft and against the war. And he was, he was brought in under the Espionage Act, which provided for up to 20 years in prison, by the way, for saying things. And he was convicted, and he came up before the Supreme Court, cited, he said, how about the First Amendment? The Supreme Court was unanimous. Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote the decision. Oliver Wendell Holmes has a great reputation, an intellectual, uh, and, you know, uh, one of the really awesome figures in American uh, jurisprudence, intellectual history, and so on and so he actually corresponded with Harold Lasky. Anybody who corresponds with Harold Lasky must be okay. So, uh, Holmes writes the decision. And he says, uh, well, he says what people have said now. If you hear this all the time. Your mother said it, maybe your father said it, your brother-in-law said it, who knows? Somebody you heard said this. So look, freedom of speech is fine but you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, right? How many times have you heard that, right? How many times have you opened your mouth and just, look, <laughs> you know, that stops you, right? I mean, who, you know, who wants to shout fire in a crowded theater? That's the end of it. That's the end of the discussion. That takes care of that, right? <laughs> Holmes, this brilliant man, gives this stupid metaphor, <laughs> right? 
this ridiculous analogy that Schenck distributing a leaflet criticizing an entrance into the war is like somebody getting up in a crowded theater and falsely shouting fire and a clear and present danger to all these people, right? Who is creating the danger? Wilson by sending us into the war or Schenck by protesting against the war? Uh, who, who started the fire? that's burning in Europe and it's killing all these people. What's going on here? A unanimous Supreme Court. Uh, clear and present danger. And so they send 900 people to prison. They prosecute 2,000. They send 900 people to prison under this Espionage Act, including Eugene Debs, the leader of the Socialist Party. Holmes writes that decision, too. Um, I'm sorry for being so... I'm more bitter against people who are, you know, revered as liberals, people with three names. Uh, <laughs> it was too much. So, oh, by the way, uh, a guy who made a film was prosecuted under the Espionage Act. He made a film uh, about the American Revolution. What's wrong with that, you might say? Well, think about, think a moment. I hate to be patronizing, but what teachers say, think a moment. You know, <laughs> come on, think. <laughs> a film about the American Revolution. The American Revolution, we're fighting against the British. This is World War I, we're fighting with the British. This film is going to arouse sentiment, it's going to divide the Allies. It's going to arouse sentiment against the British, and we're, the British are our allies. So he violates the Espionage Act. He's found guilty. He's sentenced to 10 years in prison. The guy who made this film. 10 years in prison. The film was called The Spirit of 76. <laughs> the case was called U.S. versus Spirit of 76. <laughs> anyway. It was, the First Amendment has always been shoved aside in times of war or near war. 1798 was near war, 1917 was war, the, uh, 1940 when the Smith Act was passed was near war, and then the uh, Smith Act was used against the Socialist Workers' Party, then used against the Communist Party for things that they said and wrote. You know, Look, look at what happened in those trials against the communists and the Socialist Workers' Party, and the courtroom was filled with stuff the prosecution brought in. What had they brought in? Guns, bombs, dynamite fuses? No, they brought in the works of Marx, Lenin, Engels, Stalin. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, that's like a bomb. Uh, but anyway, uh, so people went to jail. Uh, national security. And people fall prostrate before the word national security, you know, those words, national security. All you have to do is use the phrase national security. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Any, you do whatever you want to it's, if it's for national security. You know, if any of you read the, you know, the transcripts of the Nixon tapes, <laughs> those famous Nixon tapes, and Watergate, and at one point Haldeman says, uh, well, Nixon says to Haldeman, he always was, had, had his plaintive tone to Haldeman, what'll we do, what'll we do? Well, gee, what'll we do, gee? Uh, uh, what'll we say, what'll they do when they ask us, you know? And, and Haldeman said, 
say it's national security. <laughs> really. And so, you know, just recently, in, not a few years ago, in Cambridge, in, in, uh, in my part of the country, uh, a debate was scheduled at Harvard between Alan Dershowitz, who teaches at the Harvard Law School and who's a Zionist, a strong supporter of Israel, and a guy named Terzi, who's a representative of the PLO at the UN. It was going to be an interesting debate, right? PLO versus Zionist at, Har at Harvard. The State Department went into court to prevent Terzi from traveling from New York to Boston. Why? They worried about his safety on Amtrak? I mean, you know, uh, why? Because the uh, appearance of this PLO guy in Boston and the things he would say might undermine the foreign policy of the United States. And the court upheld that. Tersi could not come. National security, and then, you know, this invoked, again, invoked to keep people out, invoked to keep playwrights and Nobel Prize winners and writers. Who, and, you know, a lot of those writers overseas are, well, I don't know what they are, socialists or communists or anarchists. And uh, Dario Fo, you know, uh, keep them out. National security. Anyway, the First Amendment for a long, long time only applied to the national government. Uh, that is, Congress shall make no law, and so on. Didn't apply to the states. The states could make any law they wanted to abridging the freedom of speech. Didn't Georgia and Louisiana in the 1830s passed laws against uh, the distribution of anti-slavery literature. Anybody who distributed anti-slavery literature in Georgia or Louisiana in the 1830s could be sentenced to death. It was not a violation of the First Amendment. It was perfectly constitutional. Because, here again, right, you have to be careful reading things. First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. It doesn't say Georgia shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, or Louisiana. The states can do whatever they want. We never reckon with the cleverness of the founding fathers and all of, really, all of those people who write these things. So, well, when the 14th Amendment was passed, that might have put a little different thing on it because the 14th Amendment was directed against states now. The 14th Amendment says no state can deprive any person of life, liberty, liberty, no state. Oh, now we can act against the states, maybe. If we say no state can deprive any person of liberty without due process of law, then uh, maybe that should include freedom of the press. So now we do have protection for freedom of expression against the states. Well, that came up in 1895 and uh, with some guy who wanted to speak on the Boston Common. They wouldn't let him speak on the Boston Common without getting permit from the mayor. The mayor wouldn't give him permit. He went to the court and they said, no, no, the 14th Amendment doesn't apply. Uh, it wasn't until the 1920s, really, it wasn't until the 1920s and 1930s that the First Amendment was applied to the states. So you can say, ah, now the states cannot pass laws abridging the freedom of speech, except that anybody who went out on the street to say something or distributed leaflets or make a speech was still at the mercy of the police and the state. And, and uh, you never knew, because there's such a thing as the police powers of the state, which the Supreme Court brings up again. The state has police powers, and it's always, they're always balancing your First Amendment rights 
against the police powers of the state. The First Amendment doesn't say that, that your right to free speech should be balanced against anything. But the Supreme Court has decided, and it's a very candy thing, that it should be balanced against the police powers of the state, just as on a national level it's balanced against national security interests. On a state level, the First Amendment is balanced against police powers, whatever the state has to do to maintain order, and so on and so forth. Uh, so some student who gets up in uh, 1949 uh, 19, uh, in Syracuse, New York, and, and makes a speech criticizing the government and is arrested for it, and he goes up to the Supreme Court, they say, sorry, uh, police powers of the state, and so on. So, I mean, what you're gathering from all this, I hope, is that the First Amendment is not as strong as it seems. I'm trying to hint at that. Uh, that uh, the First Amendment is not a, a bulwark for us. Interpretations by the courts are only the beginning of the problem because the real problems come outside of court. Very few people get to court. Very few people, very few free speech cases settled in court. Most free speech cases are settled uh, out of court, that is, on the street, or at work, or in the family, or in school. That is, they're, they're settled in, in, the, in the world of reality. That's why the, the, you know, what happens in the courts, what happens in the Constitution, the Supreme Court decisions, we make an enormous deal of that. The media helped it out. Wow, the Supreme Court has said that uh, the uh, high school kids can be censored. What if the Supreme Court had, the, you know, they said that last year, right? The high school authorities have a right to censor the things that high school kids write. You know, they're only high school kids. What if the Supreme Court had said high school kids cannot be censored? How much of a difference would that make in a, the reality of a high school in the reality of the authoritarian atmosphere of a high school, in the reality of what the power of principals, of teachers, of, of everything, you know. So you have a, the fact you have a constitutional right doesn't mean you're going to get that right. It depends on who has the power there on the spot, the policeman on the street, the principal in the school, the employer on the job. The Constitution does not cover private employment. Yeah. In other words, the Constitution does not cover most of reality. Really, it doesn't cover most of the situations in which you need free speech. And therefore, you have to get it yourself. You have to do what the IWW did. They did not have a constitutional right to go into the mining towns and, and lumber towns of the Northwest and speak about, didn't have, a, this was early 20th century, First Amendment had not yet been applied to the states. States could do whatever they wanted, the IWW. IWW was not a legalistic outfit. <laughs> the industrial workers of the world, you know, uh, they were, you know, uh, oh, they're going to arrest our, our comrade, our brother. Uh, we're going we're to send 100 people into that town. They're going to arrest 100 people? We're going to send 1,000 people into that town. We're going to fill their jails. We're going to fill their streets. We're going to make life impossible for them until we can finally speak on that street corner. That's what they did. That's what the free speech fights were. Emma Goldman did the same thing. She had no constitutional right to speak in these places, and she was arrested again and again and again, especially when she spoke about birth control or about marriage. Or, you know, and that's much more serious than war. You know. uh, 
she came back. She refused to, to be silent. She came back and back and back and spoke and spoke, arrested and came back and spoke. And, and what did workers do being fired for speaking their minds? They formed unions. I mean, that's unions, that's perhaps a more important function of unions when unions were created than even wages and hours, and that is job security. That you can't simply be arbitrarily fired for something you said to your foreman because the union will come to your defense. The union will go out on strike if they fire you. And people got together, collectivized, organized in order to defend themselves. There are several problems about free speech that I haven't talked about. I'm sorry, it's, uh, which are very important problems. Everything I say actually is very important. Uh, <laughs> But, I mean, suppose you had no, you know, no, they didn't interfere with your right to speak. Suppose none of these restrictions, none of these Supreme Court interpretations, uh, no, no policemen interfering with you, none of these uh, interferences with your freedom of speech were there, and you, there you are, say what you want. What resources do you have to speak out? How many people can you reach? You, you can get up on the soapbox and we won't arrest you. Get up on the soapbox, you reach 200 people. Procter & Gamble, which made the soapbox, can, has the money to go on the air and reach 5 million people. Yeah, freedom of speech is not just a quality, it's a quantity. It's not a matter of do you have free speech. In America, we have freedom of speech. It's like in America, we have money. You know, how much do you have? You know, how, how much freedom of speech do you have? Do you have as much freedom of speech as Exxon? Uh, does uh, our nice little radio station, I'm sorry for being so, it's a great radio station. I was there, <laughs> which proves it. <laughs> it was a, a wonderful radio station, you see. But they don't have the right, they're not CBS, NBC, primetime. They're desperately trying to reach some people in this area, doing a wonderful job, but have to fight for a small audience. Resources, who has the resources? The press has monopolized the, the CBS, right? You turn from CBS to NBC to, it's all the same, right? Uh, resources. The biggest problem with freedom of speech really is the, is the economic problem. Uh, problem of who has the money to, to, to speak out, to, to reach large numbers of people. And then there's an additional problem. Suppose you even overcame that. And you had the resources. And now you could speak and you could reach a lot of people. And what if you then were in that position and you had nothing to say? Freedom of speech is meaningless if the sources of information are controlled. If, if the government is putting pressure on the, on the press to withhold information as they did in the Bay of Pigs, as they did in the uh, CIA overthrow in Guatemala, uh, the, government, the government reaches in, and the CIA hires people in the media to do their job for them. I mean, it's not that the press is, you know, poor press is being taken advantage of by the government. I think and, uh, Noam Chomsky said something about in his book, The Manufacturing of Consent. He said, you really you know, can't 
totally blame the government for taking advantage of the press uh, when the press seems to be so eager to be taken advantage of, <laughs> you see. And uh, so information, where are you going to get it? The government is lying to you. Remember I.F. Stone, first rule for newspaper people, governments lie. The government is lying to you. The government concealing information. The government is deceiving you. Uh, you have to have something to say. You have to have independent sources of information. It puts a tremendous responsibility on all of us. If we want freedom of expression, it's up to us. We have a tremendous job to do. Uh, we have to take risks. We have to speak out. Uh, we, the Constitution won't do it for us. The courts won't do it for us. To, right? Uh, we have to create social movements that create atmospheres of protection for people who will take risks and speak up. Uh, we have to create alternative sources of information. We have to do what was done during the Vietnam War and when you had uh, teach-ins outside the regular, the regular class curriculum had given people no education about Asia or Vietnam, just like the, the, the whole educational system has given people no education about Latin America. Imagine. This continent, which is clo the closest to us, with which we've had the most to do, we have the least education about. So we obviously need uh, alternative sources of information. And so we need to create, the, do what was done during the Vietnam War. Uh, community newspapers, underground newspapers, uh, alternate press services, dispatch news service, uh, this little radical news service out in in Southeast Asia, which broke the story of the My Lai Massacre before anyone else did. There's a lot, lot of work to be done uh, in, uh, in speaking up. If we need to create that excitement about, about the issues of the time, the excitement about the war, the excitement about the misallocation, the waste of, 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 of the country's wealth on the military, if we have to create excitement about homelessness and poverty of the class system in this country, then we're going to need information. We're going to, people have to know things. People have to spread the information. And, uh, and uh, that is a job that, that uh, all of us have to be engaged in day by day. You know, but uh, you know, uh, that's what democracy consists of. Uh, that's I, you know, the only thing I've been trying to say. So thank you. That was Howard Zinn, Second Thoughts on the First Amendment. This program from Alternative Radio's Zinn Archive is part of Alternative Radio's Celebrating the Zinn Centenary. This classic was recorded in October 1989 at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Howard Zinn, legendary historian and activist, passed away in 2010. His classic work, a People's History of the United States continues to inform and inspire. The book has sold more than two million copies. This program is produced by Alternative Radio. We're independent. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Noam Chomsky, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Winona LaDuke, Angela Davis, and Bill McKibben. And we have a vast Howard Zinn archive. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. 
Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Howard Zinn, Second Thoughts on the First Amendment, and his book, A People's History of the United States, just give us a call at one 800 Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.